Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Ryan Holiday. Ryan is the best-selling author of many books, including Trust Me, I'm Lying, The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and The Daily Stoic, which is also the name of his podcast. He's also the former head of marketing at American Apparel. In this episode, we talk about Ryan's strange career path from marketing to becoming the modern face of stoicism. We talk about stoicism, what it is and how to apply it to your life. We talk about mindfulness meditation. We talk about how to deal with traumatic experiences. We talk about how to pursue goals while also letting go of the results. We talk about narcissism. We talk about far-left campus-style politics and its adversarial relationship with the principles of stoicism. We talk about social media and the battle for our attention and much more. So without further ado, Ryan Holiday. Okay, Ryan Holiday. Thanks yeah. so much. Thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me. I've I've read your stuff for a long time. I've been aware of your books for for a long time too actually through my dad who's a huge fan of you and was raving about I think it was the obstacle is the way was the okay. first book that that he was raving about many years ago, and he actually gave it to me, and that's where I first encountered you. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah. So I assume a lot of my listeners will be aware of you, but for those who aren't, you've had a, an interesting career path. I'm particularly interested in the transition from running a, a massive brand, marketing for a massive brand. American Apparel to becoming really the the face of stoicism of, of modern stoicism, right? So from from being very high up in an industry where the game is to make people crave something they don't actually need, to stoicism where where the game is to really break your attachment to your own own craving. So what was that journey like? Yeah, I, I have to imagine that compared to most of the illustrious guests that you've had on, I'm, I'm probably the least educated or the least uh, sort of technically trained in what I do. But I think that's kind of fitting with stoicism. I mean, stoicism has always been uh, sort of a much more practical, I don't want to say blue collar philosophy because it was popular with Roman elites, but you know, sort of compared to the abstract or theoretical philosophies both in the ancient world and today, Stoicism, I think, has always been much more down to earth, much more sort of utilitarian and practical than, you know, sort of... Uh, Heidegger. And, yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> the names are still uh, mostly uh, unpronounceable, but the ideas <laughs> are much more graspable. And so, you know, I, I actually was introduced to uh, Stoicism before my career in marketing. And I would say that Stoicism informed me as an individual in that job, although sort of stoicism and marketing at a fashion brand are, have almost no overlap, 
but philosophy as a as a thing that people use whoever they are whatever they're doing and th- that that is where they connect i mean you think about in the ancient world the two sort of most well-known stoics are epictetus and marcus aurelius in sort of back-to-back generations one is a slave one is the emperor of rome so full gambit or the full social hierarchy of roman life is captured in those two guys right extreme powerlessness extreme power and privilege but what do they have in common there's human beings in the world trying to make do from their circumstances so my journey was first like this is what i'm good at this is where the market demand is for a set of skills um this is what interests me and i find compelling and stimulating and challenging and i got really good at it but ultimately i just i always wanted to be a writer that's what i loved that's what i found the most sort of purpose and meaning in and i wrote my first book which is an exposé of the marketing world and then sort of well what do i want to do next now that i have blown up my career prospects in this industry that was the chance for me to to sort of dedicate myself at least in the writing sense more fully to philosophy yeah so that that goes to something interesting which is stoicism and and we'll talk also about its connection to Buddhism and practices like meditation and, and so forth. But the, the skill you cultivate in all of these various practices, which is detaching from your, from being a slave of your desires and sure. immediate cravings. It's not clear once you begin to develop that skill, you can use it to do any number of things, right? Like you can, as you as you write about, you know, many Stoics were some of the most fearsome warriors of the past. And no doubt, I'm sure some of them used their warrior skills for good and probably others not, not so much. But once you cultivate this skill, you can sort of, it makes it easier to do things that you might dislike that might have been boring. But there's a separate question of whether those things are, are good and bad. And yeah. And sort of, so how, do you see that distinction the same way or, or? Yeah, I do. I mean, so, so to go to Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, one of the interesting things is sort of snapshot in time that they both live is like, it seems to have never occurred to either of them that they had any choice about where they were in the world. Like Epictetus is a slave and obviously we can assume that he did not like being a slave, but nowhere in his writings does he criticize the institution of slavery. It's just sort of a fact of existence to him. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, conversely, it like never occurs to him that because his, his father's not emperor, he's adopted. It like never occurs to him that as much as he dislikes this job, he doesn't have to do it either. So there's this interesting, almost remarkable sense of, of uh, in both of them that's just sort of like, this is what the world chose for me. This is my job. I don't have any choice. And this is my place in the world. And obviously, in a time now of a lot more social mobility and agency, that feels anachronistic, but but there is, I think, and I think you're hitting on it well, the sense that whatever it is, whatever you do, whether you're a street sweeper or a celebrity, whether you're a professor or a senator, a podcaster or uh, a porn star, like whatever it is that you do, you can be a stoic within that thing because stoicism is primarily a philosophy about sort of how you live your life, how you go through the world, how you view the world. Obviously, some professions more than others are make it 
more difficult to practice what we would call the Stoic virtues. I think it would probably be next to impossible to be a Stoic and a drug dealer, let's say, right? Because that profession, you might say, is uh, inherently unjust or negatively externalizes things out in the world. But um, I, I guess I just, there was no contradiction to me that one could be pursuing Stoicism and say, a marketing executive at a fashion company. To me, it was like, how am I doing this? Am I doing it well? Am I doing it to the best of my abilities? Am I doing it ethically and honestly and so forth and so on and so forth? And to a certain degree, I was. And to a certain degree, I wasn't. And that was partly why I chose to leave. So let's just get basic here. What is, uh, how do you define stoicism? What is, what is the stoic philosophy of life? To me, the, the essence of Stoicism is this idea that we don't control what happens. We control how we respond. And so for the Stoics, it's like, well, how do you look at the world? It's the story you tell yourself about the world. How do you manage your impressions, your emotions, your reactions to the situations that you find yourself in? So it's not that Stoicism is a reactive philosophy, although it is about the reaction, but it's a predicated on an understanding that some things are in our control and many things are not in our control and that our effort, emotions, time, energy is best spent entirely on the things that we control. So how does this sort of manifest in, in everyday life? Give some examples. Yeah. Like how does it manifest in my life? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I wake up and I try to do the best possible job uh, that I can as, let's say, a writer, as a father, as a citizen, as an entrepreneur. And I try not to think about, you know, what other people think about those things. I try not to be, to judge myself as a success or a failure based on the results of those actions that I take. I try to think about what did I bring to them? You know, sort of what efforts did I put through them? What standards was I holding myself to sort of ethically as I went through them? To me, Stoicism is a philosophy uniquely suited to a chaotic, dysfunctional, noisy world, which is true in ancient Rome, but it's true now more than ever. I think a Stoic's trying to get to this kind of a place of an even keel, a centeredness within the chaos and the noise around them. So I, I, on a good day, that Stoicism manifests itself in a kind of inner calm, despite the external turmoil of the world around you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. I myself have uh, gone to therapy. It's, it's been many years, but after my mom passed, I, I found therapy to be very useful whether it's a, an acute experience or just generally dealing with your trials and tribulations. So this is a service that can allow you to get good quality therapy online. And this service is available to clients worldwide. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your therapist and you'll get timely responses. And you can also schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you don't have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. 
It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is also available. You can visit their website and read testimonials at betterhelp.com slash reviews. And if you like what you see, you can go to betterhelp.com slash Coleman. That's better H-E-L-P. And join over 2 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. So I think I have so much sympathy for this way of approaching life. And I think I've come to it from a different angle, but really... What angle is that? Mindfulness meditation mainly. Sure. I've been meditating and uh, since I was maybe 19 or 20. I'm 25 now. And I've been to several uh, silent meditation retreats and I just, it, you know, at some point when I was 20, it, it clicked that there's something to this mindfulness thing. Right? I, was, I was trying it a few times, nothing was happening. And then, and I had, at the problem, I had this problem with panic attacks and, and anxiety. And suddenly it just, it just clicked by having, having it explained to me in the right way while I was meditating that if you actually accept what's happening, whatever unpleasant experience in your body, if you actually convince yourself that it's okay and don't just say it to yourself, but sort of practice doing this. On like a cellular level. Yes, on a, on a gut level. It actually can simply melt away or, or it can cease to be a problem. Well, the, and, Stoics and that, use, yeah. the Stoics use this word ascent, which I really like. Um, Epictetus also talks about the art of acquiescence, which I think is a beautiful little phrase, but they use the word ascent. So not like ascend up a mountain, but ascent like A-S-S-E-N-T, the sort of acceptance unflinchingly, unquestionably of, of whatever it is that you're in, whether that's a pandemic or traffic or just like a, a stressful moment. And it's obviously very easy to say, but extraordinarily hard to do. Right. Did you find that during the pandemic that that anxiety was more like visible and tangible? I think I always knew I had anxiety, but like as soon as I stopped doing all this other stuff, it was like, I'm not actually worried about stuff. I'm just generally anxious and I direct that at stuff. Right. And, And in the flow of everyday life, when there's not a pandemic, you can just constantly distract yourself more successfully. Yes. And so I think probably a lot of people have felt that way uh, during the pandemic or during the quarantine, at least. Yeah. It's like, I thought I was anxious because I was going to be late for my flight. And then I didn't Mm -hmm. want to miss my flight. And then if I missed my flight, it would blah, 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 blah. But really then when you strip out the travel and you're Mm -hmm. still anxious, you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, the common variable is me. It's It's not all the things that I'm doing that are causing the anxiety. It's me. And that's one of my favorite passages in meditations. He says, today I escaped from my anxiety. And then he says, no, actually I discarded it because it was within me. Mm. Um, and so to think that Marcus Aurelius too is, is anxious. I just, I found that to be sort of lovely and, and both timeless and timely and really good advice that like the person or the thing is not frustrating you. You are bringing the frustration to the situation mm. or the anxiety or the fear or the lust or whatever it is, like you're bringing it. And so if you let it go, it ceases to have a uh, hold over you. Yeah. And it's such a hard thing to recognize because it's such a powerful illusion that the source of your anxiety is the world, is outside of you. It's almost, you know, I mean, some people listening to this have, have to be thinking, 
this guy is crazy. No, the thing that makes me anxious, you know, in fact, let me just even steel man the criticism of this. I I remember before I had actually discovered meditation, I was, I was always interested in it as a, as a teen. And me and a couple of my friends were reading Eckhart Tolle books where, you know, like getting high and reading Eckhart Tolle when we were 17. And I was a very skeptical and atheist kid. So there was a lot of it I, that didn't resonate with me, but I sensed that there was something of value there. And, and I remember one time talking to my friend who was also convinced there was something of value there. And we were just discussing this philosophy and Eckhart has a way of saying things like, well, there are no problems in life. Problems are a concept that we layer onto reality. And at the, at the time, my mom was dying of cancer. And I, I just, I looked at him in a, in a, and I said, how is it not a problem that my mom is dying of cancer? Like if anything is a problem in this world, it's something like that. And he didn't have a response, nor did I. But even in the worst of circumstances, I think this, even when you're suffering as much as you possibly can be, there's still a mode of mind to be in from which you can just inhabit the moment and not layer more anxiety than is necessary onto something. I think that's as true if, if you're on your deathbed as it is in everyday life. Even if, you know, I, I can't claim that I'm, I'm, I live this way, you know, 99% of the time. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I say, uh, and I'm sure I took it from someone smarter than me is that all these things are simple, but that doesn't mean that they're easy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can understand that, like, you know, at 19, I read the cause of my anxiety is, is within me. So I discarded it. And I go, oh, that's really smart. I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, but then it's not till I'm 34 in the middle of a pandemic with two kids, you know, tra- trapped in my house that really, I really begin to understand what that means. And I'm forced to apply it and grow from it. And so I think that's one of the things I love about uh, Stoicism and and where I I see it as being similar to, say, Buddhism is like Aristotle, I feel like, is someone you read once, right? You read Nicomanchean Ethics and you go, oh, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. But it's not a thing you like read on a daily basis to then apply to your life on a daily basis. I, I like to see Stoicism as I think Buddhism is as much more a discipline. It's not quite a religion but it's a discipline. It's a, it's a practice as opposed to an insight or an explanation of the universe. And so, you know, to, as, as something as, as sort of deep and also challenging as like my mother dying is not a problem that, that is, uh, you know, something that you wrestle with that probably at 15, you would have been incapable of even hearing the words and then you go through it. But then as time passes and as the study uh, goes on and you, you begin to, to absorb it deeper and deeper into your being as a person, you slowly begin to understand it. At least that's been my experience. It's the, it's the constant rereading and, and rereading and rereading and writing about and talking about and applying and the sort of pinging back between all of those that, uh, that, that you begin to really get anywhere with it. Yeah. And I, I guess this brings me to one, another question I have about stoicism, which is, which is 
I think there's a lot of people that could easily see why stoicism is such a useful approach to their careers. Mm-hmm. Not, not getting too buffeted by highs and lows. Uh, you, you speak a lot about viewing things objectively. Like, you know, when you're worrying about something, asking, you know, what, what, is my, what is my anxiety about this not allowing me to see in terms of solutions and that kind of thing. But in a different realm, in the realm of relationships, it can occur to people that you may seem cold or lifeless if you take a stoic approach to your relationships. So is there, do you make a distinction between how you manifest stoicism in relationship versus in a career? Well, I would say, you know, thankfully I'm not so skilled at stoicism that it's, you know, remotely a problem that I'm not, that I'm too emotionless at home. Like if anything, Mm -hmm. I'm still, I'm still struggling to get it under control. And again, that's something that always struck me about meditations is like, this guy as an old man is still talking about his temper Mm -hmm. so much that it's clear that he has an anger problem, right? Like he's not talking about the things that are not a problem. He's talking about the things that he needs reminders of. And so even, you know, uh, well into his reign as emperor, he's still like, you got to stop losing your temper. This is not serving you well, right? He's still, he's still on that, that grind. So I'm definitely there, but I think, you know, it's not about being emotionless so much as it's, to me anyway, stoicism, so much as it's not making emotional decisions when you can help it, right? So, you know, I don't see uh, any consequence to like getting down on the floor and having fun with my kids, right? Like that to me is not a thing that stoicism is there to prevent me from doing. It's more there that when someone cuts me off in traffic, I don't chase them down and get in a physical altercation with them, right? It's, it's about preventing us from indulging destructive emotions or making bad decisions based on that emotion. But there's a beautiful line in meditations where Marcus Rios talks about, he says, the key is to be free of passion, but full of love. So I think the other place is, is again, it's not that it, you turn into this robot. It's that you are just not riven by or driven by these extreme negative emotions, but you do feel a deep sense of connection and caring and empathy for other people. You, obviously, you have to understand that life, you're not in control and that if you're too attached to anyone or anything, it's going to hurt even more when those people are taken away. But I also think the Stoic is saying because of that, that's why you should care and love deeply, you know, sort of now while you can. Yeah. And I, I think what you said at the beginning there is true for you know, 90 plus percent of people. For me, I spent a lot of time meditating and on silent retreat and and this kind of thing, but I'm very bad at it, right? Like if we're defining the skill by how often I'm lost in thought, even when I'm meditating to how often my mind is just racing, like a normal person's mind is always, then I'm very very amateur at the skill of meditation. Like I, but there are people that are excellent at it. I think, you know, people who have been at the extreme and there are people that have been doing it their whole lives. There are monks that have been basically on silent retreat since they were nine years old. And these are people whose brains at this point are so conditioned to instantly recognize an unhealthy emotion within seconds 
and just be aware of it, you know, 99% of us aren't risking getting to that level by starting a meditation practice or beginning to think about stoicism. The realistic expectation is that you're going to be able to curb, you know, 10% of your unhealthy emotions. Uh, you know, that, that's why, you know, Dan Harris had a great book called 10% Happier, which is just managing your expectations, but also with understanding that being able to become, you know, 10% less angry actually has pretty, a pretty big effect on your life. It's not, it's, that's not a small thing. Yeah. Uh, there's a great, there's a great uh, expression about writing that I love, which is that a writer is to someone who, whom writing does not come easy. So we tend to think mm-hmm. that because someone is good at something or because this is their career, that they must just be naturally good at it. That's not true at all. It's, it's hard. It, it kicks your ass. Like you, you, you're not seeing all the paddling beneath the surface, right? There's a great story about George Washington that, you know, George Washington is, is supposedly this like emotionless guy because, you know, he, he's always seen as sort of self-controlled, but like the people who knew him know he had this terrible temper. It, they were like, you don't understand how hard he is working to be this person, both mm-hmm. in public and in private. It's not that he's like a, a hypocrite or fake. It's just that like, it's only impressive because he's not naturally that way. Like if he was just like a chill, vibed out guy, it wouldn't be a particularly impressive character trait. It's that he did this work to master it. So I think that's the the first step. And then your point that it's about the little steps, like just getting a little bit better is also a thing I think we miss. We we think, oh, I'm going to go to this meditation retreat and be transformed, or I'm going to read this book and be magically made better by it. That's not how it works. It's a, it's a journey, but it's also a lifelong journey that you're chipping away at. Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, he says, um, well-being is realized by small steps, but it's no small thing. So if you're getting you know, 10% better a year or, or 1% better a day or whatever, that, that cumulatively adds up to a lot, but the day-to-day improvements are, are perhaps not noticeable. And so just the idea that like, hey, I am like what a freak out is for me now, 15 years into stoicism is significantly shorter and more contained than a freak out from when I was 20 years old. Because I have experience, because I've experienced the consequences of freaking out, right? Because I've developed strategies or practices that help, you know, apply the brakes before I spin entirely out of control. So yeah, we, we can sort of overestimate or overstate what we actually need to improve on. It's really about these sort of small steps and just staying at it. Yeah. Yeah. That brings me to another, another interesting part of this, which is the tension between being an ambitious person with goals, which entails having a, a plan for the future that you desire and are at some level attached to, or else, you know, why, why Where's the motivation to pursue it? So the tension between that and living in the present, accepting what is exactly at this moment, does that require two sort of separate mindsets? You know, you can, when you, when you read the Stoic writings, you can get this sense that like, oh, like it's almost like a sort of zen out, like don't focus on the external world. None of these things matter. 
don't be rich, don't be successful, you know, like, I don't care what people think, blah, blah, blah. And I, I did this book a few years ago called Lives of the Stoics, where I really looked at like who the Stoics were at pe- as people, what did they do? And like, invariably, they were all sort of major figures in Greek and Roman life. So perhaps there's a tension, perhaps there's a contradiction. I would just say that it's, I think about it more in terms of like, uh, as an analogy, something like ego. Everyone has an ego. Ego is a problem for everyone, but ego is a much more consequential issue for ambitious or driven people because you're you're higher up. And so the fall is more calamitous, right? The stakes are higher. The, the margin of error is tighter. And so if you are a person who's trying to do things, who does sort of inherently care about what other people think, you're trying to accomplish some specific ambitious goal, stoicism is almost more critical for you because you need to be like counteracting those impulses or inclinations. It's like how you would straighten a piece of of wood that's bent. You would bend it the other direction, right? Slowly, steadily, you'd apply force on it in the other direction. And that that might give you a slightly straighter piece by the end of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So speaking of, of ego as the enemy, this is, this is one of your books. And, th- and this is a question channeling how my dad raised me, funnily enough. What is the difference between ego and self-esteem? Because many people would say there is a, you know, you, you want to have an ego. You want to have a, a healthy ego because if you don't, then you lack self-esteem and you're, you know, th- that's your low self-value is going to cause problems? Don't you sort of want to be proud of yourself and think you're good at stuff and so forth? Part of this, I think, is just sort of semantic, like sort of how do you define ego? You know, if you're defining ego in the Freudian sense, you know, it's sort of unavoidable. It's just there. I make a big distinction between ego and confidence. I think confidence is important. Ego is something I don't even want to say beyond confidence, but it's something distinct from confidence. Ego is this kind of know it when we see it thing. It's a, to me, confidence is based on an awareness, like of your strengths and your weaknesses, of what you've done before, of who you are, of what you bring to the table. Ego to me is this kind of self-centeredness, this grandiosity, this sense of superiority, this narcissism that makes it extraordinarily difficult to connect with other people, to empathize, to take feedback, to listen to warnings. To, to experience the world objectively as it is. And I mean, you could look at you know, Kanye West, or you could look at uh, Donald Trump. You could even look at, at, at moments in Steve Jobs' life where ego is this just toxic, destructive force. That's not to say that egotistical people are never successful. In fact, they often are successful. But when you really examine the force or the role that ego played in their life, it invariably cost them as much as it helped them, right? It's like a lot of musicians are drug addicts. Jimi Hendrix, a drug addict. Is that fueling his music? Perhaps, but it's also ultimately the permanent end to his music. So it's like, a, it's a dangerous fuel that often blows up like all over the, the person using it. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no doubt that if Trump, so as in the case of Jimi Hendrix or many musicians, Trump's ego and narcissism partly served him well. Yes. 
in combat. A normal with person other would not have run for president in his position, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. A normal person wouldn't run for president at all. But yes, right. in his case, he is benefited by his lack of self awareness and even shamelessness, right? Um, right. Yes. But on the other hand, I have the feeling that if he were able to curb his own narcissism, he probably could have won a second term. I think he could have won a second term. He also could have been more effectual president, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he, he controls both uh, houses of Congress and he's president. And, uh, you know, w- was sort of this moment potentially of, I don't want to say change, but there wasn't, you know, uh, although there was certainly the resistance, there was also a majority of Americans, not literally, but um, there, there was a significant percentage of Americans who were like, let's see how this goes. We, mm-hmm. What we've been doing isn't working. And I think what you see in ego is in Trump's case, not only does it make a really hard job even harder because you're not doing the work, you're not like, well, how does this system work? What's the best way to be effective in this system, right? What do I need to accomplish? Who do I like? Who do I need to give credit to? Whose ass do I need to kiss, right? Whose ass do I need to kick? You know, all, all the things that you would have to do to be effective as a president, the, the prodding and the pushing and and just all the, 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 the levers that you, you have to use to make a massive bureaucracy effective. But then you also see it almost every step of the way, what Trump's ego does is get him dragged into conflicts, create additional enemies, you know, sort of dig his own grave in the form of public comments. I mean, he sucks himself into this quagmire of resistance and dysfunction and investigations and conflict that's essentially unprecedented in the history of America. And that's, that's what ego does. And, and it, I, again, we don't even need to talk about Trump because people get so bogged down in the politics, but there's not a great example of a person consumed by their ego who's able to effectively run large organizations for sustained periods of time. I mean, even Steve Jobs, like Steve Jobs' ego gets him fired from Apple the first go around. And it's only when he comes back that, that he's able to get that a little bit in check. I mean, there's still certainly moments of it, but, but surround himself with really great people. This is, I think, the other, the other way that ego holds this back is that almost everything is a team effort and ego is really not capable of working effectively with a team. And so great, you know, great, great athletes, great leaders have to be able to collaborate with other people and I think that's where Steve Jobs does manage to succeed, uh, you know, the sort of second go around. And, yeah. not, and by the way, nothing is more a testament to Steve Jobs's sort of battle with his ego that he effectively hands off power to a successor and the, the team is still good after he leaves. Do you know what I mean? Like Apple is, you might say it's slightly less innovative than it was before but from a stock price, I mean, Apple is the, one of the most dominant companies in the world. And Steve Jobs' ability to not just be a, a genius visionary, but build an effective, sustainable organization is essentially impossible for an egotistical person to do. Yeah, I mean, not to get back on Trump, but in Trump's case, the way that it was so obvious to everyone how to get on his good side and how to get on his bad side that he was so susceptible to flattery and to insult in a way makes him easier to manipulate, right? Because, you know, a person that was less vulnerable to flattery and insults 
you actually have to do something of substance. So you have to be useful to them in some real way or you have to hurt them in some real way. And, and that's what you would want out of a president. And, you know, it, it occurs to me there are also fictional, fictional examples. I, I just finished The Sopranos and this is, you know, a tale of, I don't know if you, have you seen? I haven't seen it yet. I'm really excited to though. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, you definitely should. But there's just so many, so many examples, even in a, in a criminal organization where a person's ego is the sole reason for them not achieving their goal as a, as a criminal organization. And, and yet there's this flip side where being a person with an ego can make people fear you in a certain way and fear your retaliation and, and so forth. And that can somehow be a, a useful deterrent if you're in an explicitly combative scenario. But, but in most situations, we're not like that. I think that's right. You know, Trump is Trump is just Shakespearean in almost every way. Right. And so it's like it's just so exaggerated that it makes for endless, you know, ability to dissect and question and explore. I think the the thing about ego is that it often looks like confidence and to an unexperienced person or a stupid person or a, a person in the sway of cognitive dissonance, you can fool yourself into thinking that what you're seeing is a really competent confident person. That's not what you're seeing at all. You're seeing the opposite of that. You know, it's like to go back to music, you know, you look at these sort of egotistical, let's say like a lead singer or a diva or something. And, and you can kind of think, oh, that's obviously what it takes to, you know, to succeed in a cutthroat business. You have to be an egotistical narcissist who uses people up and spits them out. Right. Um, But of course we forget all there's there's an immense amount of survivorship bias there, not just in the industry itself, but also in like the who do we hear the most about, right? We hear the most about, let's say, the Kanye West as opposed to the massively successful producers or singer songwriters or songwriters who are making just as much, but you know they're 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 not craving the spotlight, let's say. But I think you know what we don't see is the. 5,000 other Kanye West-esque rappers who imploded their career before it even started because mm-hmm. they were an asshole to the, to the A&R rep. You know, they tore up their contract. They asked for an insane amount of money. They never got the record off the ground, you know, uh, or they got arrested or, you know, whatever it is, right? We, we hear the most about egotistical people, particularly successful egotistical people, but we are often obscured from view, all the people who acted the exact same way and uh, prevented themselves from being successful. Yeah. So, so when it, when it comes to this idea of, you know, focusing on the, the problem inside rather than blaming the world, you know, there's a, there's a strain in our political culture that, that was when I was at Columbia was definitely the dominant strain of the local culture which aside from any particular policy issue, the general ethos of it is to blame the world, to blame others for your feelings, to be, to, to believe your emotions reflect reality in every possible way. Like, right. If, if I'm hurt by something somebody says, right. If, if, even if it's about the world, my hurt is their responsibility. Sure. And this is uh, this is similar to a point that John John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff has made, 
which is that this strain of the culture, which people, it goes by many names, you know, social justice or woke or, or whatever it's, there no, there's no perfect name for it, but it's recognizable. It inverts many of the, the lessons from various faith systems or, or philosophies such as Stoicism and, and Buddhism and, and, and therefore risks giving people a, a really a warped sense of, of how to pursue well-being in this life. And, and again, this is aside from any actual substantive disagreements about what policies are good for the world, right? This is a psychological point. And I'm curious if you, if you think about this at all in our culture right now with, with respect to stoicism. Yeah, I was just reading an article the other day about some college sports scandal and um, and put aside, because uh, I don't know whether the accusations were true, whether the person was actually an awful monster who tortured people. But basically, the, the, the athlete was talking about a coach and said something to the effect of, the coach took away my love of the game, right? Now, again, I have no idea what this coach was like, but that is a, a pretty literal example of what we're talking about, which is ascribing responsibility to someone else for your own personal feelings and emotions. But, but it's, it's to say that, uh, and look, I, I don't, uh, there is such a thing as victimization. Obviously, it's really easy for the Stoics to say, like, you're responsible for your own feelings. Like, if, if someone is brutally raped or, or beaten on the street, you could, you could see why they would say, like, hey, this takes away my ability to, to feel safe. So again, I'm not trying to be flippant about something, but this idea that somebody else is responsible for your emotions, particularly, I think, in the context that seems to be more and more common, which is like relatively benign things, like let's call them microaggressions. Like I'm not saying microaggressions don't exist. I'm not saying that one shouldn't try to be sensitive as they go through the world to not needlessly offend or impose or impede on someone. But by definition, calling it a microaggression, we're saying it is literally the smallest thing that you could do to a person, right? And so there is this sense, I think, um, I don't know if it's generational, I don't know if it's cultural, I don't know if it's always existed and it's just more prevalent now, but this sense that like other people are responsible for how we feel. And the Stoics believed that that's just not the case. Seneca said, uh, Epictetus says, um, uh, when you find yourself offended, know that you are complicit by taking offense. That's not to say that what they said is okay. That it's not to say that it's not unjust or cruel or stupid or ignorant or racist, or whatever that thing is. But by deciding to feel harmed by it, aggrieved by it, to carry that offense with you is a choice. Again, I always like to say, I'm just a, you know, a middle-class white dude. So it, I experience this less than other people. But when, when somebody says something about you, whether it's just some person who doesn't like my work saying something about me on Twitter, if I choose to be, if I am offended by that, I have made a choice. I made the choice to read it, but I also made the choice to let it sink in, to carry it forward, and then to be angry about it. These are all choices that I made along the way that I can, with work, choose not to do in the future. And obviously, that's what I try to do. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to even the extreme case of someone who's been really victimized, someone who's been you know, brutally raped or, or any kind of other really extreme violent scenario. 
because the line between flippant and profound is actually very thin. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, the notion that my mom dying wasn't a problem. That just sounds like you're being an asshole. If you, right. If I went up to Eckhart Tolle at that time and said, well, actually I have a problem. My mom's dying of cancer. I think he would have a way of saying, actually, that isn't a problem in a way that wasn't flippant, but, but was profound. Either it works in the extreme case or it doesn't work at all. And I, I think in the, in, the, in the case of a trauma, even, even in that case, I think the, the sad truth is that, you know, take the victimizer completely out of the equation. Just focus on the victim's well-being. Like the only path back to a well-adjusted life and a well-adjusted psychology is to take responsibility for your well-being. Right. It, it's, it's really the most unfair thing in the world that the victim of a trauma ultimately is the only person with the power to move past it. I wish we, we could make the world such that victimizers had the power to make their victims whole. That would be a, that would be a much more just world because it is at some level their fault, right? Like it's their fault. They should be the ones to fix it. But often it's not a matter of whether they should, it's a matter of, of who can. Right? So even in, in the worst scenarios, the way to, after years of self-work to become well-adjusted after having something horrible happen to you is just as really stoic a path as any, or it's, it's just as, um, it's as much, you have to act as if everything is in your control because or, or else there, you, you just, you're waiting for a closure that never comes. Right. No, that, that, that's right. I think you would, if you were talking to that person, you would sort of sensitively try to get them to see what was in their power as instead of, you know, sort of dismissing or diminishing what they feel in that moment. There's a great story about Frederick Douglass. I think it comes to us from Booker T. Washington, but Frederick Douglass is, you know, waiting for a train or a car or something, a coach, not a car. And he's, he's told that uh, even though he's like one of America's most famous speakers and writers at this point, that he has to go in the segregated car. And, you know, one of the, the traveling companions who is white, you know, rushes over and says, I'm so sorry, they're degrading you in this fashion, uh, that they're humiliating you. And Frederick Douglass says, like, nobody has the power to degrade me. He's like, you can't touch what's in here. Now, is that still a profound injustice uh, uh, that, 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 should, that was also unconstitutional? Absolutely. But what Frederick Douglass understands is that ultimately the word that person was using, the idea that he was being degraded or humiliated by what happened was actually stripping him of the power to decide what this thing was. I'm sure he didn't like it. I'm sure he would fight against it. I'm sure obviously his whole life was dedicated to eradicating eradicating the, the scourge of racism. And yet he understands that in the individual instance when it's happening to him, it's not changing who he is or what his value is as a person because that is inherently his and no one can touch that, not even, not even a slave owner. Yeah. I, I think uh, another example of this sort of thing that comes to mind, I think I watched a video by, by the Innocence Project. Mm-hmm which is, uh, for those who don't know, is an organization that focuses on freeing innocent people from prison, uh, usually using DNA evidence that couldn't ha- wasn't properly handled or wasn't used at the time of their incarceration. So sure. often we're talking about 
men that were falsely accused and sentenced to prison over rape 30 years ago and then testing a rape kit today and finding it was a different guy. So there was one guy whose, whose name I don't remember that you know, went to prison as a young man, maybe teens or 20s, and was exonerated by the Innocence Project, misidentified in a lineup um, after something like 50 years, right? Like his whole life. And he actually met the woman that falsely identified him as the rapist after he was free from prison. And I mean, can you imagine the apology? Like, like words can't, there's no verbal apology that can be made that, that would. Yeah. It's inherently insufficient. Yeah. But I, if I remember what he said to her is, listen, I forgive you a long, I forgave you a long time ago. Right. And, And this notion of forgiving someone who has harmed you, even if they haven't yet apologized, right? This is a very Jesus-like piece of advice. It's um, many, many of the world's religions will counsel you to do this kind of thing. I think that is another way of, of saying the same thing, which is, you know, you don't forgive someone who hurts you for their sake. You, you forgive them for your sake. And whether you frame it as forgiveness or simply moving past it, it doesn't really matter. What matters for, for the purposes of this conversation about stoicism is that you are taking control of the situation, right? You're not waiting for the world to apologize to you, right? To fix you, to make you whole, because it's impossible. You have to first recognize what is possible in this world and then proceed based on your options, right? Not, not demand the impossible because it's, it would appeal to our sense of justice. Yeah. Epictetus who's a slave. He, he's not just a slave, but his leg is sort of torturously broken and disfigured by this cruel master that he has. And he would say later that, uh, cause he walks with a limp. He would say lameness is an impediment to the leg, but not to the mind. And I think, at the core of Stoicism is this idea that like, yeah, people can attack you. They can physically harm you. They can deprive you of stuff. They could send you into exile. They could you know, murder your family. You know, they could, they, all those things can happen to you, but you always remain until the last moment that you're alive, or I guess in, in the modern exception would be, you know, insanity or something. You, are, you, you remain in control of your mind and of your thoughts. And that's sort of the ultimate power. We, we always have the ability to determine what something means, what, what opinion we're going to make of it. Um, and that's sort of our, although we, it, it, it so radically shrinks down who we are, what we're in control of, it gives us this kind of superpower and that we sort of sit above everything else and get to determine what it means to us. Yeah, so... I guess, I guess the last thing I want to discuss is the challenge of applying this, this wisdom to, to your life. So, I mean, say, you know, I've read every Ryan Holiday book. I try to remind myself of these things from time to time, but I guess there, there's two countervailing forces that make it very difficult. One is just, the habit patterns of being a homo sapien that's not evolved precisely to be stoic, let's say. 
Of course. Or maybe evolves to be the opposite of stoic. Right. It's just the momentum of our inherited psychology and cravings and and reactionaryness, to coin a word. And then there's this separate, more modern problem, which is that in the social media economy, our attention is like there's there's constantly a massive financial incentive for the some of the smartest people in in the world yeah to figure out how to get us to keep swiping on TikTok and they're really fucking good at it and and it's not even that you know if it it's not to blame them for for doing a good job and making great content it's a it's it's just a point about how good the incentive structure has gotten at creating things that are highly addictive and that are in our pockets all the time. So there's one just perennial problem, which is that you can be constantly distracted by your own thought, negative thought patterns. And, you know, you, you don't need social media or TikTok to lose hours of your life just thinking about nonsense or thinking about the same things or fantasizing about the future or dwelling on the past. But then there's this added new problem of social media and, and the, the type of stuff I had Tristan Harris on, on the podcast a while ago to talk about. So do you have practical advice for people to help them combat these countervailing forces and, re, you know, recover some stillness and peace? Yeah. Bla- uh, Blaise Pascal said that uh, the most difficult thing in the world is to sit quietly in a room alone. And he said that like in the 1500s. And uh, so it's always been hard. And it was hard in Marcus Aurelius's time and Seneca's time and and Zeno's time. And it's just, as you said, it's hard because we're human beings living in society. And then what happens when all of the vices of society get supercharged, you know, by, by the internet and by social media. And in the same way that, yeah, you know, scientists were working to make cigarettes more addictive they now work to make social media more addictive. And, and it, it is uh, the, the super drug of our time. I don't know what the, like, the magical solution is. I, I don't know like, how we cut through it. I just know we didn't choose this moment. It's the moment we're in. And so we, we sort of got to struggle valiantly against the odds, the insurmountable odds of the, and, and grasp of the exploitation of the attention economy to grab as many minutes of stillness and quiet and peace and focus and sort of presence that we can, because that's all we can do. You know, so you're talking about you and meditation retreats. For me, it's like, how do I set up my morning? You know, how long do I go before I pick up my phone for the first time? You know, how do I prioritize the tasks uh, in my life in the order of sort of meaningfulness and importance? So I think we're just, if you kind of see it as this battle and that, that we're, we're fighting to do the best we can, we're probably not going to be entirely successful. We're certainly not going to be successful all the time, but even getting a little bit better is an enormous advantage in a competition where the vast majority of people are not even trying, you know, just eating slightly healthier is a huge health advantage over just like eating whatever gets put in front of you. So. I just kind of see it that way. I see it as like this, this journey that as long as I'm here, hopefully it's a long time, but it could also be next week. Um, did I do the best that I could? Did I make as much progress as I could in the sort of brief window that I had? That's a great sentiment to, to leave it on. 
I guess before I let you go, is there, is there anything you're working on now that, that you want to give a preview of or? Sure. So, so I just finished this book uh, called Courage is Calling, which came out on, on September 28th, but I'm, I'm doing a series on the four virtues, courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. This is the cardinal virtues of Christianity, but closer to my heart, they're the, the, the four virtues of stoicism. So that's my project for the next foreseeable future. And uh, how it does, I don't have control over to go to what we're talking about, but I do control whether I showed up today and did my best to work on it. And that's the grind that I'm on. Beautiful. It's a great grind to be on. Yes. All right, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on my show. And I hope to have you back again at some point. I would love that. Um, speaking of which, I would love to have you on Daily Stoic uh, as Anytime. well. Okay. I will yeah, send yeah. you, I, whoever reached out, I'll, I'll just set it up with them. Is that cool? Awesome. All right, man. I can't believe you're 25. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's about how old I was when my first book came out. But the stuff we were talking about, I did not quite even understand at that age. So you're crushing it. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. All right, dude, we'll talk soon. Yeah. All right. All right. Bye. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.